Today's London's New York is sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audibletrial.com LNY and signing up for your free 30-day trial membership. That's audibletrial.com LNY. And now, on with the show. This is London's New York. Today, we're departing a bit from our usual mission of showing you some of the less known locations in New York City, veering on to the beaten path, if you will, to visit one of the most popular tourist attractions in the world, Central Park. All right, so, so where are we? We're entering uh, the northern half of Central Park. Uh, in front of the South Gate House of the Central Park Reservoir, which uh, is now called the Jackie Kennedy Onassis Reservoir. Uh, it was in commission until pretty recently, and it's this big, gray, sort of gothic-looking, squat, ug pretty ugly thing in some ways. Uh, and you're sort of wondering what this is doing in a park that's meant to replicate untamed, beautiful nature. Yeah, it almost looks like the entrance to a prison or something. Yeah, or an insane asylum, yeah. Here, we're going to look around the corner. And it's actually not this gatehouse that we came to see, but rather what it's guarding, the Central Park Reservoir. As he said, now officially the Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Reservoir. It's a giant man-made lake that takes up most of the park between 86th and 96th Streets. And until other systems were put in place in the early 1990s, it was the source of much of Manhattan's tap water, hence the imposing-looking guard building. And we came here, actually, for the view. Because if you look from just the right angle, it's a place where you can get a real sense of what the park might have looked and felt like when it was first built in the 1860s. The masterpiece of the superstar landscape designer Frederick Law Olmsted. It might be a little hard to imagine there being such a thing as a superstar landscape designer, but there's no question that he is it, and without him and his work and ideas, New York and a lot of other American cities would look very different than they do today. So we take a little glance around the blockhouse, or the, the gatehouse from where we were standing, and we're looking across this great expanse of water, millions of gallons worth of it. And uh, in front of us, we see this horizon of trees and sort of a thin veneer of buildings past the trees, but not too much, not too many of them are peeking out. And you can compare this to the view to the right uh, of the reservoir. And there's uh, a lot of nice apartment buildings creeping up, Behind us on Central Park South, of course, there's a lot of skyscrapers. But here to the north, it's this sort of rustic landscape. And it's interesting, for me, this is um, a, almost a site of time traveling, because this is as close to as you can get to seeing what northern Manhattan might have looked like well before uh, the 20th century. The sense of, the you know, the trees are more prevalent than the buildings. There's a couple of sort of isolated towers or buildings standing up, but mostly it's 
it's this sort of raggedy edge of the metropolis, is what it seems like from up here. And this was the intention of Olmsted. Olmsted planted tall rows of trees around the perimeter of Central Park, specifically to block out the views of the buildings, back when the buildings were small enough to be blocked by trees, to give you a sense of enclosure, that here in this park, time has stopped, that you're really um, in this other kind of world, this world of nature. As we'll hear, Olmsted had some very specific ideas about what that intersection of nature and civilization was for, and how it should be presented and enjoyed, down to very specific rules about what visitors could and could not do in his parks. Rules that, in this day and age, are almost totally ignored. And thank goodness, because it would preclude things like playgrounds and picnicking, and most of the ways Central Park is actually used by the city that surrounds it. And um, we're going to be talking a lot about how paternalistic that is. To what extent can you or should you close off the rest of the city and the rest of activity, urban activities, from a particular site like Central Park? Um, Olmsted wanted to do it. He felt like he was giving people freedom uh, to do things they couldn't in the rest of the city by forbidding them from doing certain things. Uh, and that's always going to be the balance of any kind of government, you know, liberty and, and constraint. And all of these debates, uh, you know, are just rife through the history of Central Park. Um, you know, it's, I give, I give some tours of this park and, you know, I never really come, I don't come to Central Park that often. You know, it's not convenient to me. There's too many tourists, uh, which I don't help with that because I'm leading them through it. Uh, you know, but it's amazing to think about how many of these very fundamental debates that wind through New York City's history about recreation versus transportation, the natural world versus the built environment, liberty versus constraint, representation versus universalism, how many of those are sort of... Uh, weaved into the history of Central Park. And because this is Central Park, you know, all these things happen in every park, obviously. You know, this happens to Prospect Park, this happens to Gold Park. But because Manhattan is, sorry, because Central Park is where it is, surrounded by, you know, a black community to the north, a rich community on the east, a kind of liberal lefty tradition on the west side, the commercial establishment on the south side, um, you know, there are all these different constituencies that are very visible, very numerically powerful, converging on what the park should be. So it really highlights, illuminates a lot of these struggles. So it's a great place to investigate them. Wow, there's a lot in there. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to think of a... I mean, there's a lot of city parks in the country, right? But Central Park is like... It's the platonic form of city park. It's like the the most famous and the most juicy in terms of people's imaginations, I think. And and I wonder how much of, like, what do you think it is that, that makes the park so special? And how much of that specialness is because of Frederick Law Olmsted's original conception of the park and how much of it is maybe in spite of it? Yeah, I mean, it's really built into New York's DNA in a way that few other parks are, or even few other places are, which is so ironic. Um, 
the only view you see of New York in the opening establishing shots of movies is the skyscraper, the skyline. But behind that skyline is something that's equally essential. And I think it's this dichotomy that it presents with the rest of the city um, and the way that New Yorkers can live almost a double life within Manhattan around that dichotomy that I think, first of all, makes it a powerful space. But then when you blow it up with the fact that, yes, New York is the media capital of the country, the fact that all the tensions that are played out in New York and in, you know, in Central Park, those tensions are visible and theorized and debated over all over the world. I think it makes Central Park, just even today, this very powerful lens, this powerful mirror of where we are with public space. But it's also just historically, we've had to grapple with Central Park a lot longer. Um, it's the first major public park uh, in the country. Um, before Central Park, there was maybe the Boston Commons, which is almost a medieval holdover, you know, because that was just sort of left out as common land. People were, I mean, it was put there so people could graze their sheep on it yeah, or something, right? right. But Central Park was this very deliberate state enterprise to build a park. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting that Olmsted was behind that and later on seminal for the National Park Movement, which began around the 1860s, 70s. Well, who was, talk about Olmsted. Who was Olmsted? Who was this guy? Up until Central Park, he was not necessarily bound for glory. He um, grew up in New England. He was a gentleman farmer. He uh, had become famous by the 1850s for writing about uh, the South under conditions of slavery and having a very anti-slave message in his reporting. Um, But he was well-read, and he was reading about landscape design. Um, And to think about landscape design in the mid-19th century, we need to go back a bit in a sense, back to the garden, to the two paradigms of landscape design coming out of the 19th century. The one is the French formal garden tradition, and the one is the English sort of romantic, rustic, natural garden. The French approach um, basically sees the garden as an expression of mankind's dominance, and not just mankind in general, but of the king or the noble or whoever owns the place. And the, the landscape is meant to look like the schematic of a building where there's corridors, there's rooms made out of foliage, uh, there's a hierarchy where it all spreads out from the entrance of a castle or a manor. Um, And it's basically meant to display the power and the autonomy and the good taste of an individual. Um, Now, the English tradition is coming out of a almost a Rousseau vision of where where refinement comes from, not from the good graces of a king or noble, but refinement coming out of natural man, of the untamed, noble, pure, noble savage, let's say, that's coming out of, you know, primeval forests. Uh, and the romantic tradition is to try to the romantic tradition landscape, at least, is to try to make a natural-looking environment that enables people to forget the artificial hierarchies and divisions and stresses of modern life and to bring them back to the garden, let's say. And this had been done for private estates in England for you know some time in the late 18th century, but in the mid-19th century, it was beginning to be applied to public gardens as well, and that's where... Olmsted saw an opening, let's say. 
well, and to be clear though, the the, the that British vision mm-hmm. you're talking about is not or English, I should yeah. say. I think the Scots have a different idea about wild space, but uh-huh. the um the, the English vision is is it, it's not actual wilderness. It's like a it's like a play set of like a like a, like a stage set of of what a wilderness might look like. What a stage set of what it might look like if you had a wilderness out your window, but like it's not really it's very controlled, yeah. actually. Well, this is the idea of the sublime, which um, was being developed as one theory of sort of landscape architecture. The idea that nature in its raw form is terrible and awful. It's going to scratch you. It's going to pinch you. And you don't want to... Ouchie. Ouchie, yeah. And you don't want to be too exposed to that. But you, But through the power of mankind's reason, you can extract the refined, ennobling elements of nature so you can get the best of both worlds. An example of this, uh, I think this was the analogy used, was seeing a volcano from an airplane or something, let's say. You know, it's a terrible, horrifying, huge, awesome thing you're seeing, but there's no chance you're going to be destroyed by it, but you're still aware of the power of nature, right? And I think that's what they were trying to get at um, with some of this landscape design. And in Central Park, there's gradations of this. You get, on the one hand, this very pleasant pastoral sheep meadow that's in the southern part of the park. But then when you're in the middle, sort of southern middle part of it, you're in the Ramble, which is, is a, which is an incredibly wooded, difficult-to-navigate area of the park. And I think that's sort of hinting at the sublime. The thinking was, unless I'm wrong, that that by that this was a way, by this sort of fake nature taking taking only what they thought were the ennobling aspects of nature but freeing it from the kind of scary tooth and claw carnivorous aspect of a real wilderness it would somehow improve people's characters it would improve their their it would it would ennoble their spirit in some you know very almost medically prescriptive way is yeah that- yeah exactly and it's interesting cuz both let's say the real jungle and the urban jungle were in the 1850s seen as mutual threats against the refinement of character um new york in the 1850s which is when central park is being developed is undergoing a huge growth in terms of the economy, in terms of the population, you're getting immigrants come in, you're getting factories, a working class. There are all these tensions in the in the city. And the design of the city, many people feel, is not conducive to resolving them. The city at the time is in is, you know, it's built along the grid pattern. Uh, and the grid is very good for some things. It's very easy to navigate, it's efficient to get around. But it also is incredibly pragmatic and utilitarian. Basically, you use the grid when you want to get to A, when you want to get from A to B as quickly as possible. And anyone who's in your way is going to be an obstacle. And in the aggregate, what this does is it creates this kind of citizenry, according to some theorists, who are aggressive towards one another, where there's no sort of non-commercial public space where people can air their grievances and find commonalities. Um, The entire city, because it's so um, devoted to commerce, because it's so rectilinear, it's basically not a place where you want to stay in. Like, it's all about getting from A to B, getting off the streets as soon as possible. And when you're on the streets, you're just, you know, being aggressive. So how do you make the design of the city better, right? 
And at the time, there were some reformers who felt maybe New York should be more like Paris and the streets themselves should have a kind of logic that brings out a sense of beauty and a sense of refinement. And we can get to that in a bit. But for other people, it was not to mess with the grid itself, but to create a antidote to the grid in the form of a park. We'll be right back with more about Olmsted's vision and the ever-shifting purposes of a city park after these short messages. If you're enjoying this show, you might also like some of the other podcasts on Race Car Radio. For instance, you might try Mind Your Own Business with Mike and Matt. Do you own or run your own company? I'm a small business owner, and let me tell you, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. But never fear, we're here to help. On Mind Your Own Business, Mike Ganzel and Matt Plosiak, two brilliant consultants with decades of experience between them, take real questions from real small business owners and give them answers that help put them on the track to success. It's smart, funny, informative, and we promise it will help you make your company the best it can be. Listen and subscribe now to Mind Your Own Business with Mike and Matt at racecarradio.com. Hey, it's David, and I'm talking to you from the Research and Development Center here at Race Car Radio World Headquarters, where we're very excited that London's New York is now sponsored by Audible, the world's biggest and best provider of audiobooks. And you, our listeners, can get a free audiobook of your choice, any one of their unmatched selection of titles. All you have to do is sign up for your free, no-obligation, 30-day membership at www.audibletrial.com slash LNY. And here's Dan London on the recommendation line with a book you might want to try. Hey, Dan, is that you? Yep. So, what's the title you want to recommend today? Today I'm recommending The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York by Robert A. Caro. It's the single best book to read about New York City. It goes into the full scope of New York politics, culture, and power uh, in the first half of the 20th century. You will never look at New York City the same way after you've read this book, I guarantee it. So that was The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York by Robert Caro, narrated by Robertson Dean. Just one of the incredible selection of audiobooks about New York City that you could choose by going to audibletrial.com slash LNY today and signing up for your free 30-day membership. That's audibletrial.com slash LNY. And now back to the show. Olmsted's original design is really kind of interesting, right? I mean, it was kind of funny what he wanted the park to do and not do. Right. Based on that kind of philosophical thinking maybe right tell us about that a little bit well Olmsted wanted a place that would almost decontextualize New Yorkers he wanted them to forget about commerce forget about their racial or religious hostilities and to sort of get back to grassroots literally to see each other as fundamentally human as products of nature and to do this you know, on the one hand, he wanted to visually block out the rest of the city, and he did this by um, putting out tall trees around the perimeter of the park so you couldn't see the smaller buildings. Uh, he did that by exaggerating the size of the park through creating curving paths and branching paths and blocked views using rivers and hills to make you think you're in this whole other world. But he also did it by excluding certain things. He excluded 
picnicking, uh, ball playing, picking flowers, uh, putting up statues of a historical or religious nature, because he felt all of that would be divisive. I mean, there's it, it's a direct counterpart to some of the debates we have now around sort of identity politics and sort of, you know, things like African studies or whatnot at the universities, which is from some people, they think it's divisive. You should enter the park to become free of those sort of concerns. You should be there to become universalistic, right? In the same way that some people think you should enter college to do the same thing, right? To break free of your old contexts. So Olmsted tried to do this. Now, he didn't get that far because Olmsted was quickly sidelined by the Tammany Hall administration, uh, the po- corrupt political machine of the era. And Tammany Hall was all about bread and circuses. Uh, they wanted to make money out of the park, and they wanted to run establishments in the park like zoos or concessionaire stands or merry-go-rounds. And so they would operate these things. Uh, but that also, in a sense, was bringing the city into the park, right? So you were having all these kind of metropolitan amenities within the park. So that began in the 1860s, shortly after the park's construction. You also had, um, and you go there now, uh, you know, all these parks towards these these statues of ethnic pride. There's an amazing statue I love near the, um, what's now the uh, Tavern on the Green, and it's uh, by Italian immigrants to Mazzini, and it said, to the Italians of the U.S. of America, basically. Like, it's this very, like, they couldn't quite get the wording correct, but there was this great desire among these new immigrants to sort of um, represent their traditions, their culture, their heroes to the rest of the city, and Central Park was one place they tried to do that. And in a sense, this is this you know, this this tension that goes on, of course, all through New York City, but are we a nation of nation? Are we a city of neighborhoods, a city of peoples? Or is there something beyond this that we should or even can be trying to reach? Which is, that's kind of a beautiful metaphor for the city. Mm-hmm. You know, that you have these conflicting visions of what this space should be, right? Yeah. And, you know, but what results, like... You know, on this one hand, you have this this Olmsted vision that it should be a place where, you know, people and men in top hats and, and women in, in dresses promenading slowly past serene vistas, right? J- just to, for the sake of sort of what they call nature bathing now, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you have this Tammany Hall vision of just like a place where you can sell space to, to, to guys who are selling hot dogs. Mm-hmm. And then... But, you know, and how horrible I think would the park be if it were just a, a, a sort of tableau vivant mm-hmm. of fake nature, and also how horrible it would be if it was just like a giant concrete slab with a Ferris wheel and a yeah. zoo. Well, we have but the Coney fact Island. That yeah, right. Well, I love Coney Island, but the the fact that it's both. Yeah. The fact that you go through this like you go through the ramble and you come out on the other side and there's there's a Ferris wheel or mm-hmm. like. You walk past, you know, like this beautiful like little pond and there's people sitting and then there's a big open area and then there's a zoo and then there's like and there's also a guy selling hot dogs and a guy playing saxophone and a guy like it's that the fact that neither vision won out mm-hmm. makes a third vision that's so much better than either of the other two. And that that feels like a, a metaphor for New York to me that like, yeah. all of these conflicting ideas all existing on top of each other somehow make something that's 
greater than the sum of those parts. Yeah, that's a brilliant way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me there's a quote, nature cannot win the game, but she must not be allowed to lose. And I feel that's the same for a lot of these 19th century conflicting ideals about what public space should be. Like the job of New Yorkers in some ways has been to find a way of balancing not in a static way, but in an ever-adjusting way, these different paradigms of public space and public culture, let's say, um, which has to be renewed and refigured out every generation. I mean, this is the great story of Central Park. Um, but yeah, in terms of this reinvention, um... You know, I think it's also changed a little bit more recently because when the park first opened, um, not too many poor people could actually access it because it was so far uptown and many people in the five points, let's say, could not afford the car fare. So it was mostly an elite recreational ground. By the early and mid 20th century, things had changed. The city had grown north around the park. You had... uh, people able to take the elevated train or the subway there. So it became a much more working class space. What's happened now, of course, with gentrification uh, are two things. First, the clientele of the park has changed, obviously, but also the governance of the park has changed because in the early 70s with the fiscal crisis of New York, that paved the way for what's now the Central Park Conservancy to take over. And the Conservancy is actually a private nonprofit. And they get their money from the people for whom Central Park is basically a front lawn. That is, the people in those fancy skyscrapers around the park. So now this Conservancy has millions and millions of dollars. And in a sense, they're turning the park back to what it used to be, which is this very pleasant, refined area where there's not as much sort of rough-and-tumble usage happening, um, which is, in a sense, going back to that earlier version of Olmsted, and they're being quite explicit about this vision, actually. Um, you know, on the other hand, you do see places like the High Line, um, other more modern parks, that... You know, you're not going to go to the High Line and feel like, oh, I just saw beautiful nature. But it's also not exactly a sort of rough and tumble public commons. It's really a conveyor belt for looking at the fancy condos that are around it at this point with a little frisson of, oh, I'm in this reclaimed industrial space right now. One wonders, too, how much of the current function of places like Central Park and mm-hmm. and the High Line and is really to be a tourist attraction in a very kind of self-conscious way. Like, you know, here's a place, you know, it functions in that kind of tourist economy, which mm-hmm. has become so central to Manhattan yeah. since it, since it was, since it was Giulianiized and Disneyized and kind of de, 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 de gridded, you know, that, that a lot of places just, you know, I was in um, Dumbo the other day and it, which is, um, you know, this neighborhood in Brooklyn on the waterfront um, that was really just kind of conceived very recently. You know, they, they took all these warehouses and over the course of a couple of decades made like fancy condos and restaurants and parks and stuff. And it, and it struck me, you know, I, I saw this like, you know, it was just passels of tourists waiting in line in front of the Shake Shack and in front of Grimaldi's, you know, the, and, and they'd all either just walked over the bridge or been bust in. And it occurred to me this was just created for there to be a place for tourists to go to and say they went to Brooklyn, right? 
and it's not mm. it's it's not it's not organic in any way it's not mm. people don't really live i mean some people live there but it's not it, it was invented to be a brooklyn neighborhood that was like hip enough to kind of feel brooklyny but safe enough that you could just bring tourists there right and and i wonder how much how much sometimes as much as i love walking through central park and i like um how much that's really its function now is just to be a place on the tourist checklist to feed that kind of economic engine that is tourism in Manhattan. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the justification for building Central Park um, and also for a lot of urban design plans in the 20th century was that, oh, this is going to increase tourism. But now it really is of this whole other caliber where you have hundreds of millions of people coming into the city, able to spend money, um, who have a very delimited set of priorities when they're coming to the city. They're not there to protest. They're not there to create participatory art. They're there to spend money without rocking the boat too much. And, I mean, it's very possible that, you know, just like New York's sort of financial future is up for is dependent upon these global conglomerates who don't have any particular affection for New York in particular, our cultural life, our design life can go a similar way. And it's not something that, you know, I'm particularly happy about. Olmsted, when he was making the park, had to fight against the idea that democracy is a leveling down, that you can't create works of refinement and nobility and sort of higher purpose in a democracy, that it's always going to somehow go down to the least common denominator, that um, democracy can never be more than the sum of its parts, let's say. that. And Olmsted wanted to somehow create an answer to this, that, that this was not so, that in a democracy there can be mutual learning, there can be growth between people. And I think that this is a vision that later on we see in social liberalism in the late 19th century, which in fact begins with the idea of sort of your environment shapes you, right? The first sort of social liberals were people who were saying, if you grow up in a tenement, that's going to affect your education, that's going to affect your outlook. And Olmsted was thinking of this 40 years before, saying if you grow up in a commercial, competitive metropolis, that's going to affect you. Let me read a quote by Olmsted. Consider that the New York and Brooklyn Park are the only places in those associated cities where, in this 1870th year after Christ, you will find a body of Christians coming together, and with an evident glee in the prospect of coming together, all classes largely represented, with a common purpose, not at all intellectual, competitive with none, disposing to jealousy and spiritual or intellectual pride towards none, each individual adding, by his mere presence, to the pleasure of all others, all helping to the greater happiness of each. It, it occurred to me when you were reading that, that um, it's, it wasn't just a philosophical vision he had, but it was really a spiritual vision or a religious vision almost. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he mentions Christ twice in yeah. that one sentence that... Yeah that maybe it wasn't an alternative to the city he was building, but but, but almost a kind of church. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it feels like it, it, he, he intended it to fulfill a lot of the same functions as, as a cathedral. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the 
cult of nature as a religion was developing in New York in the 19th century. You see this in the Hudson River School, which, you know, through the work of painters like Thomas Cole and Alfred Bierstadt are sort of showing how nature can refine and ennoble us. Olmsted was part of that for sure. And I think that um, in a world of disenchantment, in a world where the old verities of you shall be saved by your faith, when that is called into question, is there a replacement for that kind of vision? Is there Does there have to be one? And a lot of the social liberals thought that, um, believed in the, the social gospel, let's say, where the moral equivalent to faith or the moral equivalent of war is serving other people. I think that Olmsted, in a sense, was a step towards that, where you're doing God's work by creating a space where people can become more civil to one another and recognize one another as equals and take delight in each other's delight. I mean, it's it's a very utopian vision. Um, and, you know, maybe sometimes you feel that way when you're in the park on a nice day and there's the roller disco thing happening right by Bethesda Terrace and there's a chamber music playing next to a saxophonist and there's a tango lesson and there's still the green hills and nature from 150 years ago overlooking you. I mean, I think in in, in so many ways, New York is an overdetermined place where the building gets built, the old thing is gone, you have the memory to go by, you have victories and losses, but the struggle is gone. And I think you could talk about how in New York there are have been consistent struggles over certain issues, but it's rare that we have a place in New York where there have been consistent struggles over a particular site over and over again, each one reflecting a current generation's issues and neuroses and definitions while building off of you know, the sense that we've been here before. You know, and I think in Central Park we've been here before. It's a wonderful tabula, not a tabula rasa, but a wonderful tabula for these debates. And it's still, thank God, the winner is still not determined, and hopefully there will be no winner ever. Thanks for listening to London's New York. The star of the show is Daniel London. My name is David Hoffman, and I produced this episode with the assistance of Austin Cologne. We'd love to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have ideas for future shows, you can reach us via our social media pages. We're on Facebook and Twitter, at LNY Podcast. London's New York is a production of Race Car Radio, www.racecarradio.com.